Welcome to the Script PhD podcast, where we shine a spotlight on science and technology in entertainment and media. I'm ScriptPhD.com founder Jovana Grbic. Join me for smart, thought-provoking discussions with the brilliant scientists and creative visionaries finding unity between the analytical and the artistic. Llewellyn Cox is a Los Angeles-based life science researcher with a PhD in molecular and cell biology and a former fellow at the prestigious Weill Cornell School of Medicine. He is an avid proponent of scientific innovation equity and is the founder and CEO of Lab Launch, the first affordable, not-for-profit, scalable co-working incubator space for biotech startups. So, having known you now for a few years, I know you've had a long-standing desire to bring change, imagination, and a new way of approaching things to academia, while also at the same time fostering a passion for science. Where did that come from for you? Yeah, that's a really good question. I think that either desire to kind of do something a little bit different came from my experiences as a research scientist. I really enjoyed working in the lab and doing the various research things I did as a grad student and as a postdoc, but as the years went on and I got more independence uh, to myself and, and kind of had started to develop my own ideas of research I'd want to do or, or ideas I wanted to pursue, the more I found that the system as it was would be really constraining upon that. And really, in the end of the day, that, that's what led to me kind of moving out of the lab and looking to do something else a little bit different because I really had a realization that there really wasn't the opportunity to do the things that I wanted to do as a research scientist within the system. And I thought that was a bit messed up. My, my reason for, for like pursuing some of the things I have over the past few years was, was really a reflection of that issue and, and wanting to kind of make it so that that doesn't happen in the future. So that when young people have good ideas or are passionate about a particular line of research, that they can, they can take it forward. They have the opportunity doesn't necessarily have to be easy, but they at least have to have the opportunity to take it forward in the way that they want to. Well, before getting into the lab launch details, I do feel that it's important to set the table here, so to speak, to give people a perspective of how the current science climate and circumstances give rise to a startup idea such as yours. Now, this could easily be enough material for a podcast unto itself, and actually probably will be in the future, but for now, Let's go through some cliffs notes, starting with funding at the academic and industry level in terms of broadly allocated resources for basic research and development. There is no money. It's a risk-averse climate. Absolutely, yeah. It's, it's a very risk-averse climate. And, and where there is funding, through National Institutes of Health particularly, it's very concentrated in very delineated areas of particular interest. So it's it's a very much a haves and a have-nots kind of system. There's a few people doing really well in certain areas that are relatively well-funded, but there's very, very little money or opportunity out there for more speculative or really very innovative new ideas. Um, you know, those are in some way discriminated against in the, in the way that we, we allocate funding, uh, you know, in the modern environment. And again, if you're in an area that, that isn't canonically 
uh, acceptable. It's very, very hard to pick up those grants that you need not only to, to pay for the research itself, but to maintain uh, a position and a career in a lab within the academic structure. It's a global phenomenon, right? I mean, this is not the United States or Canada we're talking about. There is a worldwide recession, so to speak, on scientific innovation. Absolutely, yeah. I mean, it's it's easy for us in, in the U.S. to be the rich kids and, and bemoan how our budgets have fallen by like 1% or something. And it, it's not the best environment. But yeah, worldwide, we've seen a retrenchment in investment in very much early stage research, uh, anything that doesn't have a clear and deliberate application. There's a real retrenchment in the areas of, you know, blue skies, kind of green shoots research of new ideas that are that are maybe a bit more inventive, novel. It's very hard worldwide to get funding for those. And you would think that this problem would actually be way less of an issue in cash flush biotech environments, but in fact, it's just compounded even more in terms of there not being ubiquitous availability for scientists to pursue uh, research at that level. Absolutely. And again, it comes down to this singular focus in certain areas of whether healthcare or, or disease or, or new drugs or, or whatever that, that research is targeted towards. And the same is true at the industrial level. Pharmaceutics are constantly consolidating into a small number of big players, and they're only interested in, in terms of research in paying for things that improve their bottom line. You know, they'll, they'll pay for research that where they can get a competitive edge in, in a mass market drug, but big pharma is not interested in investing in something like you know malaria treatment that's going to not really pay much but serve a lot of people. That That's kind of antithetical to the, the business model they've been developing over the last kind of 10, 20 years. At, at the same time, there's an issue of whereas there was a, it used to be a complement somewhat of, of government funding and industrial funding in the kind of discovery and development stage, we've seen pharmaceuticals especially moving their focus to much, much later stage. They're growing by acquisition rather than by R&D in and of itself. And it's kind of creating this chasm between the areas where, where academia is traditionally very strong in kind of the basic discovery research and you know the point at which something is, is now commercializable. This so-called valley of death gets ever wider. And adding fuel to that flame is a system that often just doesn't have room for the many PhDs and postdoctoral fellows it creates. It's dependent on them, but there's an overflow of, of talent and simply no place for them to go. Well, quite. And that's something that's been a, a passion topic of mine for, for years now, because you know the entire research endeavor within the academic system requires lots and lots of low-cost labor in the form of graduate students and postdocs. And so we've been creating many, many of these people for, for decades now, but there simply aren't the academic jobs for these people to go into. There's, there's something like one assistant professorship for every 10 PhD students or something something like that. And yet, that's the only career path that we currently train PhD students to do. The vast majority of universities, academic institutions don't provide training appropriate to other career paths. So we're, we're creating this glut of academically minded research trainees who have no easy pathway towards building a professional life in that particular area because there's simply just too tight of a funnel to the job market. Now, 
you've spent quite a bit of time in an academic position, in several academic positions, trying to implement some extremely creative and interesting, some would say radical, new ideas to broach some of these issues that, that we've been discussing and to, in fact, improve them. Now, while of course remaining circumspect, what are some of the challenges you found of change from within? You know, this isn't unique to academia. It's not unique to, to universities. If you, if you try and change the status quo of the way things are done in any institution, it's, it's going to be difficult. There's, there's a natural resistance to change. You know, we do things the way we do them because we're successful. That, that's an attitude you'll see in a university, in a big Fortune 500 company. That's... You'll see it everywhere. And it, it's natural and it's not altogether bad. The issues we have specifically with the, the academic endeavor is that that kind of attitude is, is very entrenched. And we have a relatively small number of folks who have a relatively large amount of power, and they mostly represent a aging and rather homogenous cohort. You know, as a result of that, you, you can get some very strong institutional pushback whenever you talk about doing something new. And, you know, this is something we found at institutions I've worked with when we started talking about doing workforce-appropriate training for PhD students outside of the umbrella of what they need to be a successful professor. There's kind of uh, a number of reactions you get to that, but few of them are positive. There's partly, there's the, well, I, I suffered through this, so you have to too. There's the idea of like, well, why should we even be doing this in the first place? I'm not interested in supporting Pfizer or, you know, Amgen or something. That's their business. You know, we're here to do research and be PhDs. There's a kind of almost a denialist side as well. Quite often come across the attitude of, well, this student I had works for this great company, so obviously there's not a problem. But, you know, a lot of it is, is really just a case of there's a very stable status quo and it's very resistant to change. And, and that's a very tough environment to be in. But the positive upside to any kind of frustration or, let's say, a broken system or an entrenched system, the upside is opportunity. And so was born the idea of Lab Launch. What is Lab Launch? How did it come about and why is it so different? So Lab Launch is a, is a non-profit biotechnology incubator company. We were actually born out of a sense of frustration on my part in that I was working independently as a consultant for early stage biotechnology companies. You know, guys coming out of big universities with big ideas. And what we were finding was I was working with some really, really cool people uh, in the Los Angeles area. And yet the minute they got funding, they left town. They moved to San Francisco or less often San Diego or Boston to get funding, to get lab space. And this made absolutely no sense to me. You know, why should a city like Los Angeles, the second largest metro in America, the manufacturing capital of America, why on earth would new businesses ever want to leave here? And we realized whereas there's a number of issues that create this problem, one of the key characteristics of the Los Angeles area was there's a real lack of available, affordable lab space for people to do their basic R&D, get their company off the ground, create proofs of concept, and start growing their companies. At the time we founded Lab Launch, there was only one functional incubator in all of Los Angeles County. 
And so that's essentially what led to the formation of Lab Launch. And uh, we've been very fortunate and we've been really lucky that we have a really dedicated group of volunteers and supporters who backed us. But yeah, in, in pretty much just, uh, just about one year, we've gone from having one to two incubators <laughs> and uh, we, we've doubled the current capacity of accessible lab space in the county. Uh, and we have plans for more. Our goal is to create a, a number of networked spaces around the region so that anyone, no matter what their background or what their level of expertise is, can access a lab launch facility, get the support they need to get their business up and running, and then have access to that greater network across the county that can connect you with the expertise you need to be successful. You know, in today's entrepreneurial climate, particularly with the influence of the tech business world, I do think the word disruptor kind of gets used a bit superfluously, but in this case, it's entirely appropriate. You are absolutely disrupting research science and what we think of as the traditional model for how to get innovation done. <laughs> yeah, when, when they used to write disruptive on my school reports, it wasn't as a compliment. This is where, where we are, you know, we're, we're at a stage of history though now where we're looking at, at biotechnology and we're seeing the, the tools of, of biology and they're, they're at a really critical stage. They're becoming more ubiquitous than ever and we have a whole generation now who's grown up, gone through grade school, learning about genetic theory, the basis of inheritance, how DNA works, how cells create products. And I really believe that we're at the beginning of a new industrial revolution in, in living things, in biology. As we go through the 21st century, we're going to be replacing heavy chemical industry with life technology. Instead of digging up chemicals out of the ground and doing hugely energy intensive and polluting and dangerous things with them to make them into the products that we need, we're just going to grow them in a bioreactor. And I think that's an incredibly exciting thing. I think it's, it's, an, it's an incredibly positive thing for the sustainable development of humanity. But it's also, just like every industrial revolution before it, it's a huge opportunity for people who can see where those gaps are and really take advantage of the tools available to them to create really innovative new businesses. And yeah, may, that does disrupt the kind of traditional view that we have of biotech as big pharmaceutical and big agriculture to being more of a dynamic and, and diverse industry where there's many, many different niche players doing their own particular little things to create really cool products. You know, it's funny, a lot of people listening to this podcast, particularly because of the broad nature in which Script PhD covers science, are thinking, okay, this is spectacular, but how does it impact society as a whole? And what you're saying is, theoretically, you're giving space and allocation for a business to walk in or an innovative person to walk in and create the next great material, a cure for a debilitating illness or a major experimental breakthrough. Absolutely, and you know, as, again, as, as we move into an era where the tools of biology are, are more ubiquitous, more affordable, and more usable than ever, there's no reason why you have to have a PhD and have gone to an Ivy League university to be able to take advantage of some of these technologies and move them forwards. We're already seeing this in, in some of what you might call the low-tech areas of biotechnology, brute technology, is a great example. We've gone in the space of 10 years in the USA from having 
three or four big brewery companies make the same five products and sell them on every 7-Eleven shelf to this incredible diversity of microbrews and craft beers where people take this millennia-old technology, it's biotechnology, it's growing microorganisms and having to make a product, in this case ethanol, and they're taking it in interesting new directions and trying different things with it and, and using different growth conditions to create their own national product and and that's a microcosm of where i think that we're seeing biotechnology going in this century as, as more sophisticated biotechnology has become more and more accessible we're going to see a further explosion in this industrial endeavor well one of the fears that science incubators foster in society and obviously it was my first thought too is this idea that you're providing an opportunity for someone with nefarious or less than noble intentions to have the space to carry them out. Let's say, God forbid, a terrorist or even just a Walter White wanting to set up a sophisticated meth lab. I mean, is this a pragmatic fear or is it kind of far-fetched? It's completely understandable, absolutely, uh, but it, it's not something that actually we, we worry about too much. Although, I've got to say, we don't accept people into our facility for various reasons who are working on marijuana technology. Uh, the city that we live in is not a big fan of that industry, for one thing, and we are across the road from a church. But that said, if we took on every marijuana startup that's pitched to us, we'd be full already. But I think, actually, a, a facility such as Lab Launch actually helps abrogate those concerns. You know, rather than having folks doing something Walter White style in their own garage, which is pretty bad, and there's actually a lot of legal things to stop them doing that. You can't get a lot of research chemicals delivered to a residential address, say. People who want to work on, on whatever their technology are, they're coming to a controlled environment. For legal reasons, we have to have safety data sheets for every chemical that comes in here. So we know what's coming in. You know, we're scientists ourselves, so we can understand what our residents are doing, what they're trying to do, at least on a superficial level, without abrogating their, their intellectual property. And I saw video cameras everywhere as we were walking through. Absolutely. We, we have video cameras, more, more to stop people stealing each other's stuff than anything else. But, you know, this is a very controlled environment where we make sure that, especially biological pathogens, which I think are a real concern, they're handled in an appropriate manner. One of the advantages, I think, of a co-working environment is you, have, you, you do end up with a somewhat self-policing kind of community. In a biolab where something can be infected and, and ruin your experiment because some nefarious bacteria floats in and lands on, the, on your experiment, the last thing you want is someone who's being really messy and dirty in, in the same lab. And so actually we, we found, that, and other people who do these kind of incubators have found that you actually end up with a very well self-policing community to make sure that people maintain appropriate standards of cleanliness and hazard control because if they don't, it affects everyone else's business. You know, that's not something people are generally prepared to accept as a risk. It's a very understandable concern. Uh, I actually think that a, a controlled and maintained environment such as Lab Launch actually helps to mitigate a lot of those concerns. Mm -hmm. uh, and obviously we work with safety and local fire department and everything to make sure that everything on site is handled and stored in an appropriate manner as well. What has been the early reaction to the success of Lab Launch? Has it all been good? Any blowback? from people feeling threatened or, I mean, what has been the range? It's been really interesting. It has been an overwhelmingly positive and a very pleasant way for us. We've been really welcomed with open arms by the city of Monrovia and 
the Chamber of Commerce and local business groups and even groups such as the Boys and Girls Club that we're starting to work with now that are really excited to bring high technology young businesses to their areas because they look at areas like Silicon Valley was farmland 40 years ago. And just by having sensible regulations and a good relationship with business has been able to house some of the most dynamic, fastest growing companies on the planet. Obviously, these cities see that that is a, as a real touchstone to really go after. As a rule, we've been very welcomed by the academic community. The investigators, the professors, the students that are interested in starting companies, they're very excited to know that there actually is a place where with no strings attached, they can just go work on some stuff, try out an idea, get a proof of concept, get to a point where they can take something and then go and pitch. That's, that's been overwhelmingly positive. We've had less positive reactions from some areas of the educational establishment. And again, this, we come back to the status quo. People want to feel ownership of an area. And unfortunately, the, the word innovation is owned by academics. And there's many educators out there who think they can do better. I believe there's two entities that should never run an inc a business incubator. One is the government and the other is academia. Business startups are the business of business people. And I think that's incredibly important. And it's incredibly important to get new companies up and running successfully. There have been a number of deals that I've witnessed personally have fallen apart at late stages because of rules that were put on these companies when they were just starting out, out of their universities to supposedly protect the university's IP. But now they have all kinds of ownership and rights concerns that when they get to a really serious raise, like a Series B, a couple of a few tens of millions of dollars, a few hundreds of investors, the underwriters look at their company structure and like, no, no one's going to touch a company this messy. This is an example of how well-meaning people in the academic establishment hamstring companies trying to spin out of universities because they don't understand how companies are put together and how they're really successful in the real world because they don't make companies. When you look ahead 10, 20 years, what do you hope that this proof of concept establishment inspires? That's a really interesting question. I, I like to imagine, and I'm an optimist, and I think that things always tend to, to work out in the, the most energetically efficient dimension they can because we live in a biological environment and that's how biology works. But yeah, in, in this ideal scenario where we win gazillions on the lottery and we can do whatever we like, I would love to see a non-profit incubator like this in every city in America. So that every kid or growing up... Around the world, up, really. Or in the world, absolutely. Any kid who's in school, be they in 10th grade or, or they're an undergrad or, or whatever, they, they come up with an idea. There's a place where they can go find some affordable space to actually work on that idea, find a supportive community that can help them with all the things they don't know. Because I think the, the number one thing you learn as an entrepreneur is how much you don't know before you start doing it. Oh, that's it. totally true. And a supportive environment where they can go get the advice they need, get the work they need to get done, and, and start the business. I really do believe that the best path to prosperity is entrepreneurship. And the more people we can enable to follow that path and give the support that they need to at least have a chance of being successful, then the better we're all going to be. I'm not a 
fortune teller. I can't tell you which business is going to succeed or fail. But the more businesses that we can we can start, the more ideas that we can put out into the marketplace and test, ultimately the better off we're all going to be and the better off the world is going to be. And at least here, you're giving them a chance to start somewhere. The plan. Good luck and thank you so much for doing this. Thanks, it's been a pleasure. Listening to the Script PhD podcast. I'm Jovana Grbich. Our theme music was composed by Dave Mendez. For more conversations with groundbreaking innovators at the interface of science and popular culture, subscribe to our podcast channel on iTunes and SoundCloud. Or find a full archive on our blog, scriptphd.com, by selecting the podcast category. See you guys next time.